0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Sitting there, I I couldn't help but admire the band. Uh, The instruments, the singers, made me wish I could do either one of those things. Um, In junior high, I was part of the percussion section for a very brief time because my friends and I thought that that gave us license to launch into solos every now and then. And the, uh, the teacher very politely one day asked us to leave the band room and to never come back. So that was the end of my, uh, my short-lived career with an instrument. But it's, it's marvelous to hear Professor Michelle and the rest of the band play and sing. Uh, the sound is, is, is truly wonderful. Well, uh, initially I want to say thank you to Dean Sweetman for asking me to deliver this message or this address in chapel on this particular day, in this particular year, and therefore it's both an honor and a privilege to be standing here on Founders Tyndale Day in the 125th year of the institution's founding, which I think is a real cause for celebration and I know we've been celebrating it in various ways all year and this fall. I know Tuesday we're all asked to wear something that is uh, a piece of Tyndale swag. Today I have on the tie that was delivered to me in person by the president last week. Uh, Some of you might have socks on, I don't have the Tyndale socks on today, but it truly is a privilege to be here and speaking to you this day. Now perhaps because the name has changed a few times, as has the precise focus of the institution and that we're just four years into occupying this campus, this beautiful campus, it might seem, it might appear that Tyndale is new or young. And if you think that, notwithstanding the 125th anniversary, you'd be wrong, there are just four of Ontario's over 20 universities today that were founded before Tyndale was established in 1894. And the main reason that Tyndale came into existence in that particular year was because of the vision and commitment of a small group of Christian leaders and lay people, both, during the last decade of the 19th century, which as many of you know, I consider Of all the centuries in human existence, I consider the 19th to be the absolute pinnacle century, which of course doesn't make me progressive and makes me a Victorian and all of those sorts of things. But I think the 19th century was just about the engine room of all of modernity. And of course it's named for the greatest queen ever, and that's capital G, capital Q, capital E, Victoria but I'm not gonna get off track on that. I won't digress any further. One of those key leaders in 1894 was Elmore Harris, who you can see on the screen behind me. And Elmore Harris will therefore be the focus of my my remarks today. Now Canadians of a certain age well remember the Massey-Harris or later the Massey-Ferguson company which became one of the largest producers of farm implements in the world during the latter part of the 19th century and would remain so well into the 20th. Any of you from agricultural backgrounds will certainly remember Massey Ferguson. The Masseys themselves, of course, were one of early Canada's most prominent families from their pioneering manufacturing days in Newcastle to their emergence as major philanthropists especially through their donations to the University of Toronto. So Victoria College at the University of Toronto, for example. Hart House, Massey College from the 1960s, the Fred Victor Mission in the city's downtown. All of those were Massey endowments. The Masseys of that time were staunch Methodists, like a lot of other Canadians and took seriously, therefore, their responsibility to give back to the community from which they had amassed great wealth. No less so was the Harris family. The Harrises were committed Baptists. Elmore Harris, born in 1854, in Beamsville, Ontario, was the son of Allenson Harris, whose manufacturing company would later merge with that of the Massey's creating this juggernaut of the Massey Harris company. But before we look more closely at Elmore Harris, and we will, I'd like to say something about founders, or even more broadly, because this is what founders usually are, not all the time and not everywhere, but often, particularly when you go back as far as we go back. More broadly, what is sometimes called the great man or on fewer occasions, the great woman approach to history, and I put that in quotation marks, the great man approach to history. In our day, in our day, this approach has been questioned, sometimes even condemned, by those who insist that certain aspects of the past ought either to be apologized for by the current generation, or in some extreme ways, wiped clean from the record. Now this impulse in the main strikes me as a form of what might be called historical cannibalism, and nowhere do we find it more prominent than in the world of the so-called great man, or even more pointedly, the dead white European male, the dreaded DWEM, D-W-E-M, of many a post-colonial nightmare. Now don't worry, I'm not going off on a tangent or a rant, and I don't mean to diminish the various failings and certain outrages of many men and women in the past. I'm quite sure that I would not wish to encounter any number of the gross transgressors that come down to us from across the ages. But their blanket condemnation, and I've lost count over how many times I've heard dwems summarily disparaged, seems to me both intellectually immature and self-righteously moralistic, not to mention obviously racially tinged. But in any event, therefore, with my cards on the table, so to speak, let us return now to Elmore Harris, who as you can see clearly, or maybe not so clearly, as clear as it can be made, is every inch what can be called, and I don't know whether I'm coining this today, but maybe I am, a dead white Canadian male, a DWCM, shall we call him. Now, professionally, as it happens, and as many of you know, I've written a few biographies over the past number of years of both men and women. All of them, it may be argued, could be described in terms of their subjects as great in one way or another, or worthy of biographical examination. And currently, in fact, I have another such book in press that would qualify under the same heading, a study of Lord Allenby of First World War fame. Now mentioning such people reminds me of an anecdote, an anecdote told of that granddaddy of great men, you might say, Sir Winston Churchill. Nearing the end of his political career, and you'll recall it was a very long political career, but nearing the end of that, in the 1950s, when he was the Prime Minister of Britain, a grandchild of Churchill's snuck into his bedroom one morning in order to ask him a question that had been on his mind for some time. Now, Churchill, as you may know, was a notorious late sleeper. Uh, If you think teenagers like to sleep in, Then Churchill was the eternal teenager. Don't come near me before noon. And when you do come near me at noon, bring the tray of breakfast with you. So in comes his little grandson early in the morning with a question on his lips. And Churchill is lying there having a lie in, as they say in the UK. And he did, in fairness, work very late hours typically. Churchill. But in any event, the question on the lips of Churchill's young grandson was one that he'd been put up to by his friends in the schoolyard because they'd been asking him, we've heard that your grandfather is the greatest man in the world, just the greatest man in the world, the man that won the war and so on. So the young grandson determined to find this out by asking Churchill. So in he tiptoed and standing at the end of his bed started poking him in the foot and churchill came alive as it were startled by why anyone was in his room prior to noon and a very grumpy churchill was asked this question grandpapa are you the greatest man in the world And Churchill apparently groggily came to, and he was used to this question, in fact. And he said emphatically, yes, yes, I am the greatest man in the world. Which was followed swiftly, apparently, by a well-chosen word or two for the grandson to get out of his bedroom. And I won't repeat those words in chapel. The point is this, the point is this. Individual greatness does exist. Vision does too, as well as perseverance and an abiding trust in God's providence to see that certain things come to pass for the sake of the kingdom. And in the figure of Elmore Harris, perhaps Tyndale's most important founder as its first president, we can see and appreciate this fact readily, I think. Growing up in Beamsville, Harris attended school there, as well as in nearby St. Catharines, before enrolling at the University of Toronto, from which he obtained a BA degree in 1877. Now, in 1877, Confederation was just a decade old, and the Canada of 1877 was, as many of you will remember reading, was a heavily religious society. A lot of Canadians went to church in 1877. The church had a very public face in 1877. And one of the obvious things for someone of Elmore Harris's background and convictions to do was to enter the pastoral ministry. So he did so. He started in St. Thomas, Ontario, in southwestern Ontario, and later he moved back to Toronto to assume the pastorate of Yorkville Baptist Church, which is the forerunner of today's Yorkminster Park Baptist Church, which many of you know down Young Street. And then after that, as pastor of Walmer Road Baptist Church, which was located near the U of T campus. And it was while Harris was serving at Walmer Road in the early 1890s that he, along with a small group of Anglican and Presbyterian Lay people decided to found a college, a college to educate students specifically in Bible and missions. And the result was the Toronto Bible Training School, founded in 1894. Now, the TBTS, as its acronym was, was the embryo Tyndale. And it commenced operations in that year in a small way, I think the first enrollment at Tyndale was about eight students, which is no big deal. All the big universities start from tiny acorns. Oxford, a few people who made it across the river and were attacked, started Oxford. There were three students at Harvard, and so on and so forth. So, tiny group in 1894, and here we are 125 years later, celebrating this fact in our magnificent chapel. Now, during the years that followed TBTS's founding, and through a number of iterations of name and location, Tyndale, and we'll call it that now for convenience, flourished, flourished, even as Harris himself became one of the most important public Christians in the Canada of his era. Among other things, he was a key donor to the new Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, which had been founded in 1875. He lectured at McMaster University, a Baptist foundation that was founded around that time too, and in those days was located in Toronto. He sat on McMaster's Board of Governors. He served likewise on the board of the China Inland Mission. During this, the great age of missionary expansion abroad. And he was involved also in heated controversies over the nature of biblical interpretation, part of the higher criticism debates of the time, And to that end, he served on the editorial board of the Schofield Study Bible. Altogether, altogether, Harris became a leading figure in the world of post-secondary education and Canadian public Christianity, not to mention his family's ongoing high standing in the world of Canadian industry. He was married and had five children. And when his wife died, In 1910, he married for a second time the following year. Sadly, on a protracted honeymoon with his new wife, his second wife, which became a tour to a number of places in the world where Baptist missionaries now resided, including India. He died. His death occurred in December of 1911 Well he was at Delhi and in that year Delhi had just been named the new capital of British India. The British Raj was still in control of India and Delhi had been named the new capital to replace Calcutta and to mark that occasion and to mark the new uh, king there was a huge Durbar a Delhi Durbar it was called a huge celebration and both King George V and Queen Mary were there, and so was Harris, so was Harris. Sadly, he died of smallpox. Not so many people die of smallpox anymore, but a lot of people still died of smallpox in 1911, and Harris was one of them. Harris's passing just a few months after marrying, and coming as it did so far from home, was of course unspeakably sad and was reported widely in the Canadian press. But despite his life's relative brevity, what an outstanding life it had been, full of service, full of service to the church, to higher education, and to the common good. He may have lived only 57 years of age at the time of his death, but Elmore Harris's life had been highly influential, and yes, by any measure, it must be said that it was great. It was a great life. As has often been stated, institutions like Tyndale are built by the next generation standing on the soldiers of the one that has come before. And in the life of Elmore Harris, therefore, a life of clear dedication and singular purpose, we have no better example before us to take Tyndale into its next 125 years. So, for the life of Elmore Harris, one of this institution's most important founders, I say thanks be to God and thank you for having me here today.